you may know, the reason we've uh, called it that you may know is uh, it seems that this is a chief concern of John, uh, who is a close disciple of Jesus and actually a very close friend of Jesus, uh, who wrote uh, one gospel, one of our four gospels, in addition to this letter. And he seems to be very concerned uh, that um, his audience know the truth and he's unpacking it in this letter, that they know certain things about who God is and what he's done. Uh, Last week, we actually looked at John's summary of this letter, this whole letter from uh, chapter 5 from the end, especially verse 19. And we talked about how uh, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, uh, we know the truth about ourselves and about the world. That's one of John's overarching desires is that his audience knows the truth about themselves and about the world. And this week, uh, we're actually going to start at the beginning. So we started at the end, and now we're moving back to the beginning of the letter. And uh, particularly in, ch- in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we'll be talking about the subject of happiness. That's really what we're talking about tonight is, is, is happiness. We, as 21st century Americans, are obsessed with happiness. Obsessed with happiness. Uh, it's enshrined in our Declaration of Independence as a basic human right and uh, the pursuit of it. And since then, that has only become more and more uh, just uh, a part of American life uh, that we should be happy and we should do whatever we have to do to be happy. And um, I know some of you might say like, Nick, everyone wants to be happy. All across time, people have always wanted to be happy. And that's true. I mean, you don't want to be sad. Um, But uh, there have been other cultures, they exist even now, that, that uh, their paradigm, their major definition for the good life is not one that's just pursuing happiness, uh, but rather uh, they're built on things like duty. They have a high esteem for duty. In the East, that's actually considered uh, maybe the highest virtue you can possess is not that you're someone who finds happiness or that you're true to yourself and, and, and your desires, but rather that you might even deny those desires for the sake of your family or your community. Uh, those are, uh, that's a higher place in ancient Greece. It would have been being someone of character, uh, that you exhibit good morality and that you are above petty squabbling and things. That would have been the key to uh, the good life. But here in America, we really want to be happy. We just want it. Uh, we want to find happiness in our desires, however they lead us. Uh, And that's life's greatest end and it's life's unassailable virtue. Uh, And you don't have to look for for examples of this in our culture either. Um, I just started, sort of, uh, my wife is tipping me off to this show, uh, this Netflix series called The Home Edit. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of this, but essentially they come in and they like redesign people's like spaces and help them uh, get organized. And it's like Marie Kondo, but like different. Um, and uh, in it, one of the episodes, like the third or fourth episode of the home edit, Jessica, who is a high-end event planner in Los Angeles, is celebrated uh, for divorcing her husband uh, to come out as a lesbian. Now, okay, I'm not saying that that's good or bad. That's not the conversation we're having tonight. Uh, that's a topic for another time, and I'd be happy to discuss it with you. But... Um, how we as viewers are supposed to receive that news that she has left her two children and her husband uh, to seek out a life with her partner. 
is entirely based on her happiness around the subject, right? She feels happy about her decision and we are told, Jessica tells us, I was living a very safe life. My life was very safe before her divorce, but now uh, with the home makeover couch as a fresh start to a happier life, this will be her coming out party that she can leave her marriage and her kids behind and be a new person. And that's what's gonna make her happy and she should do that. Um, regardless of how that might make her family uh, better or worse. And then uh, to pick on both sides though, just to be clear that I'm not uh, like saying anything bad or good about anyone. Uh, this is also, I think maybe the factor that lies behind a lot of like mask wearing politicization. Uh, the fact that we tell each other like, um, I, no one can tell me what to do with my face because if it's my face and if I feel happier without a mask, if I feel good without a mask, then I'm not going to wear one and I'm not convinced by the science or whatever. And despite the fact that your neighbor is imploring with you to please wear one, you don't. Um, and I think that like, and again, maybe that's right. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is our calculus for how we make basically every decision in America is whether or not it makes us happy. That's really how we, how we govern everything. Um, and it doesn't matter if you are the most liberal person or the conservative person or somewhere in between, we just dr live, eat, breathe, drink the reality that there's nothing better in life than pursuing your own desires and happiness. Uh, we have a right to do that. Um, well, into this culture, into our culture, uh, John steps from 2000 years ago, trying to tell us about what true joy is like, what uh, true and satisfying uh, happiness looks like. Uh, and he's gonna submit to us, or to put it into his own language, proclaim to us a good and satisfying answer to that longing for joy. Um, as we go through this passage, it's my goal that we'll do two things. I want you guys to get two. If you're a note taker, this is like the big two ideas that we're going to try and, and walk through tonight. It's my goal. We see two things. The first is the content of John's message, uh, the content of John's message about happiness, and then the consequence of John's message. So those are the two things we're going to talk about. The context or sorry, the content of John's message and the consequence of John's message. So let's read our passage. This is uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Uh, it reads this, uh, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete let's pray uh dear god um quite simply um here tonight with the rustling of the wind and airplanes and uh, whatever distractions we may feel, I do pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Rock and our Redeemer, O Lord. Amen. All right, so let's dive into this passage uh, and consider our first point, the content of John's message. 
Uh, look with me at verses one through three. If you have that pulled up in your phone, it's in the, uh, the bulletin if you want to look with me. You'll notice that the first three verses here are one giant run-on sentence. Uh, it's that way in the Greek too, so you're not just uh, misreading it. And it gets a little hard to understand because uh, in verse two, John actually interrupts his thought to tell us a little bit more about it with an independent clause. And then he repeats himself in verse three to signal that he's picking back up the thought he had in verse one. And so it gets a little confusing and it's made further confusing by the fact that John starts the sentence uh, with the object of the sentence. Uh, This is the word of life, which was from the beginning that's seen, heard, and touched. Usually in English, when we talk to each other, we use like subject, verb, object to communicate things. So for instance, like in a sentence like, Aaron Rodgers threw the football, right? We, when we say Aaron Rodgers, the subject, threw with a verb, the object, the football, right? That's how we like talk in, in our normal, normal English vernacular. And it makes good sense to us. Um, so if we were to write John's like first three verses in better English, we might say something like, we, the subject, John, proclaim the verb, that which was from the beginning, which we've seen, heard, and touched. We proclaim that thing. Um, But Greek doesn't work that way. Greek doesn't work that way. In fact, uh, word order is interchangeable in Greek, the the language this is originally written in. And it's interchangeable in order to emphasize uh, certain parts of the sentence, right? So if you really want to talk about the end of the sentence, right? So we don't have any way to do this besides saying like that which and then going with a really weird run-on kind of sentence. he takes the object, the end of the sentence, and puts it at the beginning because he doesn't want us to uh, miss the goodness of what is coming. He doesn't want us to focus on the proclaiming action. He doesn't want us to focus on him. He wants us to focus on the message and its content, what is there, what it is that he's proclaiming, not the proclamation itself. And John wants to capture our hearts with the beauty of that. Um, And he begins to tell us with urgency, right, in a sense, by putting at the front, the beauty of this word of life. And given how this phrase word of life is used elsewhere in the New Testament, in Acts 5 and in Philippians 2, uh, this always seems to refer to the message which conveys life to men. It's the message which shows and demonstrates and offers life to mankind, women, men, children, Um, And elsewhere, it's called, it's interchangeably used with the gospel or the good news. Um, It is a message that is full of life, that is itself life-giving. But then this gets a little confusing in verse 1, though, right? Because if it's a message about how to get life, how do you touch a message? Like, how do you touch a word? And what does it mean in verse 2 that it was from the beginning, Uh, and has been made manifest. What does it mean for a a word to come into being? Well, uh, or or to take on humanity uh, is probably the proper way to say it. Uh, Jesus is that message, right? The reality is that John is intentionally conflating this Christian message, this gospel with uh, the person of Jesus, who John also says in the beginning of the first chapter um, is an allusion to Genesis 1, that he was there from the beginning, Uh, In his gospel, he says that. So Jesus is the message and the message is Jesus. 
maybe, and that might seem confusing, but actually, uh, this is how we talk about other things too. Um, let's say, uh, you and your significant other get into a fight. Uh, if you don't have a significant other, that's okay. Maybe think of it as a friend, whatever, but you and your boo thing are fighting and yes, that boo thing, uh, you're fighting and, uh, that person wrongs you or whatever your significant other wrongs you. And, uh, they, they come back to you later. One, one option is for them to come back to you in person later with like a 40 count chicken McNugget and say that they're sorry. Right. And that'll, they'll smooth things over their other option. And one that like probably is often employed is that they send you a message, probably a text message, right? Uh, given our 21st century context, they'll send you a little text message to say, I'm really sorry. And that they love you. And if you go that route, you don't like receive that text and say, like my boyfriend's text says that he's sorry. Right. Or like my girlfriend's text says that she's sorry. If your if your girlfriend came up to you the next day and was like, and you were like, throwing shade at them. You're like kind of like mean or like kind of aggressive to them. Uh, and they were like, what's wrong? And you were like, um, I mean, your text message said you were sorry, but you haven't said you're sorry yet. You would be like, yeah, I mean, your boyfriend or girlfriend might like break up with you right there. Cause you're nuts. Right. It's like, uh, I thought that you, I thought I said I was sorry. The reality is that in that moment, right, the message and the sender of the message are the same person that uh, they're so identified with their words and the, the news that they are bringing that they become kind of one thing, one entity. To accept one is to accept both things. And the same is true here. Uh, the same is true of Jesus. His life-giving message to accept the news that he himself declares and proclaims and brings and then also lives out and does are one and the same. Uh, and, and that message is this, simply that we, God's creation, have rebelled against our creator and that Jesus, in his mercy and in his love and his goodness, uh, came down from heaven, became a man, the second person of the Trinity, becoming a man, lived the perfect life of love and obedience that we ourselves could not live, gives us that righteousness and takes upon himself our sin, uh, the wrongs that we've done to other people that God should punish us for, he takes on that punishment on our behalf and we get to enjoy free and clear without doing anything to deserve it, God's unmerited favor and everlasting life. Even though we have sought our own happiness apart from God, uh, according to whatever is right in our own eyes, uh, God shows us mercy in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of that is the that which that John is now proclaiming. That is the that which. Uh, this is the story of our world that John is claiming, that we are reconciled to God through Jesus by pure and unmerited grace. Uh, I have a friend who uh, also does this job, or he's been doing this job for a long time in another school. And at that school, uh, there are, I think this is the same way here. There are different, uh, if you get a parking pass, uh, there are different levels of parking permits. And as you increase the levels, you actually get access to like all the levels uh, below it. So there's like one that's like, uh, that you can get that's just for like one parking structure on campus and it's always full and it's a terrible pass to have and like you don't actually want it because you can't ever find a spot. 
but it's like the lowest level of pass. And then like the highest level of pass is this one called the super premium pass. And like, like I've never, like this guy has never seen this pass. I actually used to go to this school. I've never seen this pass. I've seen the things that say you can only park here if you're super premium. And it's like, these are like in like fire lanes and stuff. You know, it's like you, you really shouldn't be able to park there. It's like a fire hydrant. They're like, you can't park here unless you have a super premium pass. And I'm like, I think that's still legal, but whatever. The university looks the other way. They're parking. And uh, my friend is signing up uh, to try and get a parking pass like he does every year. They do this every year. You have to buy a parking pass similar to here. And as he's there, he says, hey, what do you have to do to get one of those super premium passes? And the lady behind the counter is like, uh, actually, it's just by wait list. So like, if you want to sign up for one, uh, maybe you'll get it eventually. I got to be honest with you. I've never even given one to somebody because like, I think the people who have them just have them every year. I've been here for long enough. And so I don't, I doubt that you'll ever see it, but you never know. And he goes, well, you never know. You can't win if you can't, if you don't play. And so he uh, puts his name on the waiting list and time goes by five years actually go by and he's uh, signing up again for his uh, terrible spot in the parking garage. One of those terrible parking passes, the only thing he can get. And he decides like, you know what? I'm going to ask because I haven't heard anything. Uh, I'm going to ask about that super premium pass. And he, tell, he asked the lady, it's the same lady from like five years earlier. He says, hey, I signed up like a long time ago for one of those super premium passes. I was just wondering, like, where am I on the list? Thinking he's going to be like 40th or something still. And the lady, uh, you know, punches a little thing in her computer and she looks at it and she goes, ooh, so it turns out uh, your number was called, looks like three years ago. Uh, and the window for getting one is 30 days. So I could re-sign you up at the bottom of the list and you could work your way back up. And then in you know another three to whatever, how many years you could possibly get another pass. And he says, he's just beside himself. He's like, I didn't see the email. He looks it up on his phone, right? He like, searches like where it would be turns out yes they sent it to him like three years previous and he's just kicking himself and while he's standing there he's like there's nothing you can do he's like begging this lady like please let me have this parking pass uh the director of parking and transportation at the school is walking past he's like hey is there a problem here and he goes i i messed up he tries to tell him whatever he's like why don't you come back to my office so he goes around the side and he goes back to this office he tells the guy look i missed the window on the super premium parking pass i'm i'm Obviously, like, it's my fault. I, I did this wrong. I should have been more uh, aware. I'm really sorry. And the guy just goes, it's, punches a little thing in his computer, pulls out from under his desk a super premium parking pass, hang tag, like hang on his thing, and says, don't use it all in one place. And uh, my, my friend walks out of the office uh, free and clear. Uh, I tell us that story because... Uh, this is what it's like to receive the gospel. Um, it, we and ourselves are dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot earn God's favor. Um, we are not in and of ourselves amazing people. Uh, we tend to believe that we are or pretend that we are. But God in his goodness knows exactly the kind of people we are. We are screw-ups. Um, we are short with our wives like I was earlier as she like helped me like set all this stuff up. Like we honestly are um, continually broken and breaking other people. And 
God wants to, or sorry, John wants to put in front of his readers and God wants to put in front of us the reality that Jesus has been seen and heard and touched and smelt and tasted to some degree uh, through the Lord's Supper, um, that he is present and that he has acted in history to reconcile us to himself. He wants that content of the message to get in front of us. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that, that Jesus did this? What does it mean that God has moved heaven and earth, that God has put on humanity to become one of us and die for us? Uh, why is this good news? Why is this a word of life? Uh, what does this have to do with our own happiness? Well, let's consider then our second point, the consequences of John's message. Um, so I said, we, we've covered the, the content. Let's look at the consequences. Look at me at verse three. Look at me at verse three. Uh, if God has acted in Jesus's death to reconcile us to himself, and this is the primary message we believe about our lives, then the reality is not just a vertical one, but a horizontal one. In verse three, uh, John tells us that uh, part of the reason he's proclaiming this message, part of the effect that this message has is not just that Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father, but that he has reconciled us one to another. Um, that the identity that is marked out for us, that we are loved and forgiven, means that we no longer have to wrench happiness from other people by seeking their praise or their approval, that we no longer have to seek happiness in uh, becoming significant, stepping on whoever stands in our way, anybody who might rival our success or our security. Instead, uh, we have all we need in Christ. That's, the, that's what John is putting forward to us. He's claiming that if this is true, then this changes everything. And he's saying it is true because I've seen it and touched it and known it. Uh, and that that changes who we are. It changes how we interact with one another, uh, that we can have deep and abiding fellowship and friendship with one another. Um, Jesus makes the same point. He proclaims the same message. Matthew 18, 23 through 35, he tells a parable about a king who uh, had uh, a debtor who owed him 10,000 talents this is like an innumerable, I'm not even going to calculate how much, this is an innumerable riches. Like he's never going to be able to pay this back. That's the point of the parable. He can't pay this back and he uh, tells this debtor to come in front of him. The king actually uh, tells him, I, you know, I need, I need this payment. The servant falls on his knees, implores him to have patience and he'll pay him everything. And out of pity for him, the master forgives his debt. Um, just completely wipes it out. All the debt falls on him instead. And then immediately after that, this same debtor goes to another man who owed him a hundred denarii, right? So 10,000 talents, we're talking like a million dollars, whatever. This guy owes another guy like a thousand bucks, maybe, right? A hundred denarii is like a hundred day, hundred days, hundred days worth of wages, right? It's not nothing, but it's not like a million, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, small in comparison. And this guy comes to this, this uh, guy who's just been forgiven his debt, comes to this other guy and says, I want my money back or you're going to get thrown in jail and does so like throws him in jail. Cause he can't pay the debt. 
When the master hears what's happened, what's taken place, Jesus tells us, uh, this is what the master says. You wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, the reality that Jesus is picking up on is that grace goes somewhere, right? That we have received grace from God, but it doesn't stop with us, that it actually pours out into our communities uh, as our happiness is found in who God is and what he has done for us, Um, that we can naturally extend that grace into our neighbors and that that, in fact, is the bedrock of Christian community. That is what binds us together as an RUF. Forgiveness and self-forgetful love are the hallmarks of Christian friendship. And this is also a small plug for uh, coming to church with us or finding a local church somewhere in Milwaukee. This is also the enduring community. And it's why we here at RUF are so adamant that you engage in a local church is because uh, that community is beyond this campus And that is the one that endures forever, uh, long after UWM is gone, long after RUF is gone. Uh, But this fellowship is not the sole consequence, right, of this life-giving word. Uh, Look with me at verse 4. And we're going to look at something else that makes us happy. John and his readers, he says, share a fullness of joy in believing John's proclamation. Uh, This, he says, is why he's written. He wants them to have joy himself and them to have joy in the things he's written about this Jesus he's told them about. Um, now I will say, uh, I need to be careful and I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not saying that and neither is John saying that like, if you believe this gospel, then everything about your life will go super well. And, uh, you'll be super happy all the time because you won't have any problems. Uh, uh, in fact, the opposite is true in John's own gospel in chapter 11, Jesus himself openly weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Uh, Even though he's going to raise him from the dead moments later, Jesus is very sad. And and so sadness is part of the Christian life as we look honestly at the world and the way that it is. And John told told us this last week that the world lies in the power of the evil one, that uh, the reality is life isn't the way it's meant to be. So uh, we can look unflinchingly at that. We know that that's the truth as a Christian. And yet, and yet, sadness uh, is not the final word that we can have full joy together as a consequence of the gospel in our Christ-centered community. How is that so? Well, Paul touches a little bit on this in his letter to the Romans, um, but it's part of what Jesus has done. Uh, He says this in verse 32 of chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, God may not spare you from hard things, but the reason that we can have joy even in the midst of hardship and letdowns and sadness is that we know the truth that God is with us and behind us and that all things are hurtling towards a good resolution for us. How do we know that for certain? How do we know that? Um, Because the 
person that John has touched, that he has seen and heard, accomplish that through his death, that his blood is literally staked on your life, right? That he has died to reconcile you to himself and to make all things right. And I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't shed like one drop of blood for something that I didn't think was worthwhile. Uh, Instead, we see that uh, Jesus thinks we are indeed very much worthwhile and so that we can have true joy in knowing him and knowing this God who has died for us, loves us, cares for us. And we know that one day this community, this, this, these people that are reconciled to one another and reconciled to God will endure into a new heavens and a new earth. And John will talk about that later in this same gospel. Uh, so we see that the content of John's message namely the good news of God's unmerited love for us demonstrated in Christ, it drives us into joyful community, real joy that lasts, that satisfies, um, and is not a cheap substitute in ways that other things that we can set our hopes upon are here on earth. This is true happiness, and all other pursuits are but pretenders. Let's pray.